0: This morning we are continuing our summer series on the Psalms. As you know, there are 150 Psalms, so you might be wondering how we choose which Psalms to read each week. There's so many options. Of course, in a book like the Psalms, you'll always have your greatest hits, right? And then you'll have your Psalms that don't often get read in church. It's kind of like if I gave you the song names, Here Comes the Sun, Hey Jude, and Let It Be, You all know that's the Beatles, right? Right away, because those are their greatest hits. But if I gave you the song names Honey Don't, I Call Your Name, and Her Majesty, you may not know right away that those are also Beatles songs, the least popular according to Spotify. They have the fewest streamings on Spotify. So this summer, we're going to read some of the greatest hits, but also we're going to stream some of the least streamed psalms over the course of our study because it would be easy to just stick to the most beloved psalms but the book of psalms is deep and wide and has much to offer if we're willing to encounter some of the harder psalms and this morning we have one of those harder psalms in psalm 44 so as we prepare now to hear god's word read and proclaimed let us pray that the spirit would make god's word known to us today let us pray O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. All these prayers we make through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the word made flesh. Amen. The first lesson this morning comes from Romans 8 verses 31 through 39 listen now for the word of the lord the apostle paul writes what then are we to say about these things if god is for us who is against us he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us will he not with him also give us everything else Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Jesus Christ who died. Yes, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written... will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And our psalm text this morning comes from Psalm 44. If you want to open your Bibles to the middle, you can follow along. This psalm appears to originate certainly from a time of national crisis in Israel, most likely the invasion of Babylon when they destroyed Jerusalem and sent a good portion of its inhabitants into exile. Listen now, once again, for God's word. We have heard with our ears, O God, and our ancestors have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but then you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm give them victory, but your right hand, your arm, the light of your countenance, for you delighted in them. You are my king and my God. You command victories for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down our assailants. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to confusion those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Yet you have rejected us and abased us and have not gone out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe, and our enemies have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the words of the taunters and the revilers, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in the haunt of jackals and covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a strange God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart." Because of you, we are being killed all day long and accounted as sheep for slaughter. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For we sink down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In times of difficulty or tragedy or chaos, we might wonder what to do with our anger and our doubts. We don't want to take our anger out on other people, we know that much. For better or worse, our society is not particularly accepting of anger. So, where do we go with it? What do we do with it? Where do we give voice to the pain and distress that we sometimes feel? Mr. Rogers, the pioneer of wholesome children's television, approached this question with children through the lyrics of one of his most memorable songs What do you do with the mad that you feel? What do you do with the mad that you feel, he sang, when you feel so mad you could bite? when the whole wide world is so, so wrong, and nothing you do seems right. He goes on to encourage children to slow down, take a deep breath, and do something else instead. Consider what the psalmist in our psalm today does with the mad that he feels. He turns it into his prayer. The prayer begins with the psalmist stroking God's ego a little bit, offering nostalgic recollections of the good old days when God led the people into the promised land. But then the psalmist turns on God quite suddenly and harshly in verse 10 and declares, Yet you have rejected us and abased us. And a litany of you, you, you accusations follows. And the psalmist goes on to declare that the people are in fact innocent and never did anything wrong. And then as if to take one more shot at God, the psalmist's final petition begins, rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? In other words, even while the psalmist is pleading with God to do something to help out down here on this dreadful earth, he's taking shots at God, accusing God of sleeping through the people's misery. And then the psalm ends, quite suddenly. A lot of lament psalms have some kind of affirmation of trust at the end some kind of inspirational finish something like but i trust in your faithfulness and in your steadfast love and i will sing to you a new song but not here we don't get any of that psalm 44 ends abruptly the last words we get here are essentially do something god the ball is in your court I took a class on the Psalms in college, and I remember the professor saying on the first day of class, never preach on the Psalms. Of course, I didn't heed his advice, and I love to preach on the Psalms. But his rationale for that claim was interesting, and I think makes an important point. He said, never preach on the Psalms because it's easy to infer bad theology from the Psalms. If we aren't careful as we read the Psalms, we could draw some pretty strange conclusions about God and the world. Now, remember, not every genre of text in the Bible is the same, right? Some parts of the Bible are written to be theological expositions. The argumentation and allusions are written for the purpose of making theological claims about God. Think, for example, of the beginning of John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, full of grace and truth. That's a theological text. But the Psalms, however, first and foremost, are songs and prayers. And they're not prayers written from the safety of a seminary classroom or the cognitive world of a theological library. They're not prayers written as the faith statements of confirmands, or the reaffirmations of faith of new church members. They're not prayers written to be carefully articulated, nuanced doctrine. No, these are prayers that emerged from the miserable mess that life can sometimes be. They're written in the midst of wars and invasions, by ill people on their deathbeds, by ecstatic worshipers in the temple getting carried away and even clapping in church. Imagine that. What the Psalms teach us about prayer, first and foremost, is that prayer is honest. Prayer has to be honest. To pray is to open up the depths of how we really feel to God, whether or not our sentiments align perfectly with the Apostles' Creed. To pray is to put into sometimes careless words the heights of our joy and the depths of our sorrow. Much of the Psalter is about what it feels like to be human more than what is ontologically or objectively true about God and the world. So, if we're looking for textbook answers about the person and work of God, then the Psalms are not always very helpful. For instance, in today's Psalm, the psalmist claims that God is asleep, right? But we know that God does not sleep. In fact, another psalmist says elsewhere, the one who watches over Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Today's psalmist also claims that the people are innocent and have never done anything wrong. Verses 17 and 18 say, All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps never departed from your ways. In other words, not only is all this bad stuff happening to us, but we never did anything wrong to begin with. A likely story. And these unfounded accusations made towards God reach a crescendo in verse 23, when the psalmist asserts, because of you, we are being killed all day long and accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that what we believe to be true about God? Does God afflict us and abandon us To the worst of the world? Of course not. Of course not, right? In fact, the Christian faith does not believe that God leads us along as sheep to be slaughtered. In fact, we claim the very opposite. Jesus says he's the good shepherd, who in fact lays down his life for the sheep. So while this psalmist says that God leads us like sheep to the slaughter, Jesus says he gives himself to be slaughtered that we sheep might live. Consider also what the Apostle Paul does with this psalm in the Romans 8 text we read a moment ago. Paul is building a theological argument that God's love is the most powerful force in the world. And so he asks rhetorically, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists all the hardships he can think of as hypothetical threats that might separate us from God's love, hardship, distress, Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, the sorts of things the psalmist is complaining about. And then Paul quotes Psalm 44 as if to punctuate the weight of his question. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul asks essentially, can anything separate us from God's love? Because after all, it's been written. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. But his first word after quoting this psalm is a resounding no. This would be bad theology, he asserts, an inaccurate and misguided way to think about God. Instead, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, conquerors who can overcome anything. The love of Christ has overcome any potential threat to God's love and nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul seems to want to settle a theological debate, and the book of Romans is meant to be theologically precise and magnificent. But theological deliberations were never the point of Psalm 44 to begin with. The intent of Psalm 44 is not to paint a picture of what God is like— The intent of Psalm 44 is to paint a picture of what life feels like sometimes. You see, what we believe to be true about God and what we observe in the world around us don't always line up perfectly. Sometimes, the almighty God of love seems asleep when the diagnosis comes, when shooters open fire, when the wicked prosper. And that discrepancy can make us feel disappointed and angry and doubtful toward God. Sometimes people tell me they aren't sure how to pray and they want to learn. I've come to wonder if people sometimes hesitate to pray because they're afraid of praying bad theology. Maybe we think we don't know the Bible as well as we should, or we don't know what Christians believe about God completely And so we don't want to risk praying and risk saying something wrong. There's a right way to pray, we think, and a wrong way to pray. And the right way must involve right theology. And so the risk of praying something wrong is just too great. And in the end, we don't really pray at all. When I lived in Pittsburgh, I remember speaking with a man who told me that his wife had died. And since it was a hard time in his life... He wanted to learn to pray so he could feel better, and I suggested he begin by simply telling God how he feels every morning when he wakes up. Just articulate it. Just put your reality into words. But he said that wouldn't work because he always felt sad in the mornings, and Christians aren't supposed to feel sad. I asked him, who said Christians aren't supposed to feel sad? And he said, well, it's in the Bible. I'm not sure what he was referring to exactly, but the point is that in times of crisis, maybe our prayers do fail a theology test. Maybe our prayers sound a lot like the psalmist. We might pray things like, why have you stopped listening to us? I I never did anything wrong. It's your fault this happened. Our psalmist makes all of those claims in this psalm, even though we know theologically that God never stops listening to us that none of us is perfect, that God doesn't do evil things. But proper theology will still be there when the dust settles and we begin to grow into our grief and loss. And in the meantime, it's okay to be honest with God about how we're really feeling. To be honest about our anger doesn't mean we don't have faith. Fake it till you make it is a good principle for many things. It's not a good principle for learning to pray. Now, the point of being honest in prayer is not just to engage in a cathartic release of emotion and be completely unthinking about who God is in the meantime. Just because our prayers should be honest rather than accurate doesn't mean that prayer isn't theological. In fact, Praying with honesty opens ourselves up to God in such a way that we're ultimately able to know God more intimately. When we open up our hearts to God, expressing how we really feel, God self reveals back to us as well. As we make ourselves known to God, God makes God's own self known to us. And so, in time, our theology regains its clarity. In time, because God is gracious, we remember that though we feel like sheep being led to slaughter, the good shepherd laid down his life for us. In time, because God is gracious, we remember all of God's faithfulness in years past and affirm, as the psalmist does early in our psalm. Not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved me from my foes. In time, because God is gracious, the disorientation and chaos of our lives that may prompt doubts and fear and anger will subside, and we become convinced with the Apostle Paul that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. Friends, God is not insecure. As we've seen, God allowed some pretty mean and outrageous things that were said about God to survive in Holy Scripture. Don't you think God could have edited out this psalm if God wanted to? But the psalm is here to show us that God can handle your doubts. God can handle your accusations. God can handle your anger. And God will respond to your honesty, not by turning away from you, but by turning toward you and reassuring you that Christ's love is stronger than anything else you will ever face in this life. So what do you do with the mad that you feel? Turn it into your prayer. Be honest with God. For we can only pray through our pain if we pray honestly. And it's through our honesty that we come to discern the depths of God's faithful love toward us in Jesus Christ, a love from which nothing, nothing, nothing can ever separate us.
1: Alleluia and thanks
0: be to God. Amen.